0: Hey, welcome to Resurrected Our Freedom. This is my good friend, Dr. Fred DiDomenico, handsome young Italian man. Thank you. I love him so much. I'm Dr. Douglas Siena. And with me today is a specialist in pharmaceuticals. He uh, graduated from USC. Uh, he has a doctorate degree in pharmacy. And um, we've been talking a long, long time about the development of this COVID and where it's headed and kind of the debacle that's unfolding as a result of it. So with me today is Dr. Amir. Dr. Amir, welcome to Resurrecting Our Freedom. Thank you, thanks you for having me. Hey, so we wanna go through a couple things. Um, first of all, I just wanna know what your perspective on the COVID is, uh, where it started, and kind of what woke you up to the idea that we are taking the this COVID virus way too far in terms of the lockdowns and some of the very draconian things that we're doing for people. And so can you just give us a little bit about your background and why and how you got woke to this whole situation?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, my background, you, you briefly mentioned, I, I went to USC Pharmacy School. I did a couple of years of specialty residencies and went into teaching at USC for a few years, as well as working at the acute care hospital out there. Uh, after that, I went straight in, into long-term care consulting, where I see uh, uh, patients in what are commonly called nursing homes every month and evaluating their drug therapies. Um, been doing it since 1998, so it's been a while, um, and I've seen a lot of different things in the healthcare industry. Uh, as far as COVID, um, I remember hearing about it in December, a virus out in China, um, a respiratory virus out in China, and uh, right around January, beginning of January. Uh, your uh, one of your patients one of my good friends uh i'll leave his name out of it he asked me he's not uh he's not very well uh, he's not very good as far as healthcare is concerned so he comes to me with this stuff so he asked me what do i know about it and i did a quick search about some of the data coming out of china and what it looked like to me at the time in january was another type of respiratory virus that um kind of like influenza, hits the elderly very hard. Um, the numbers were very low, preliminary back then, but the the, the distribution of the types of uh, deaths and the age groups looked a lot like the influenza.
2: Yeah, so I remember back then, it wasn't that long ago, right? Where they're saying, this killer virus is coming. It was like the impending doom. And it's like the, it's like the cloud of locusts, you know? They're coming over <laughs> to eat everything and infect people. And it was like, ah, something seems fishy about this. You know, mm-hmm. yet, yet they were trying to perpetuate that fear. So, you know, hey, you're an expert in this, right? And you just saw, ah, it doesn't really look any different than what we go through every year. But let's see what happens.
1: Yeah, um, essentially, uh, part of that fear, and there's multiple reasons. We've talked about it, whether it be politically uh, uh, based or uh, just uh popular culture, all these movies where you see the killer viruses coming around, right? Um, Our experiences in the past with MERS and SARS and uh, H1N1, swine flu, right? So it just kind of prepped the national, I don't know even how to say it, the way we think about these things differently. So when this thing came out and, you know, history will show how and why it got blown up so quickly, so fast. In terms of the media and how it was portrayed, it it was surprising yet not surprising to see how it got blown up so quickly.
0: Well, let's, yes, for let's not forget, Amir. Let's not forget that everybody was following a faulty model. That was Dr. Neil Ferguson, out of England, who predicted
2: one point two million or something. A, we're gonna die. a
0: death rate was was multiple times higher than the actual death rate that we have. So it's, it's like we followed a model. And by the way, just for the record, Neil Ferguson has a dubious past in his previous predictions. And why in the world did we follow him again down this uh, dubious kind of prediction that he had?
2: Well, and not only that, let me, let me interrupt yes. everybody. It was shortly after he came up with that model that he personally determined it was an inaccurate model and we couldn't right. use it.
0: Right. But the U.S.
2: government kept using that
0: model. And also a lot of other scientists, to interrupt all of this, a lot of other scientists try to remake that model with the data and it never came up. They could not come up with the same outcome. But anyway.
2: So you were seeing all this too. So sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, I was seeing it too. And this was, uh, those modeling started to come out, what, about February sometime, middle of February. Um, And as part of my master's program, I actually uh, took a class on modeling and, it showed us, uh, I mean, there's multiple different kinds of models, but the old adage of a garbage in equals garbage out. A lot of these models, some of the variables you put in, if you change it by one or 2%, the outcome on the models can vary by 50 or 100%, right? So whatever variables they were using to put this model together that came out with the 2 million estimated deaths, it could have been something as simple as the infection rate or the R naught is what they call it, right? You change that by a few percentages or a few degrees, you're gonna get a massive change in your your outcomes. So putting a model together with limited data in the very beginning, sure might've been nice to see what it would look like, but to report it as this is what's going to happen, looking back for them, probably not the wisest move.
2: Well, now isn't, I'm sorry, for, but for all our listeners, the R not number doesn't the R naught number relate to the virulence, like how strong it is? It, it relates is to
1: infection rate? It, it relates to how easily it transmits to other people. Okay. Uh, the virulence is a, something a little bit different, but R naught basically is uh, if the flu, for example, for every person that catches the flu, they they spread it to uh, 1.1 other people, for example, right? The higher the R-naught, the worse. Uh, measles, I believe it's like something like 16 or something like that. For every person that has measles, they split it to 16 others. The higher the r not, the the worse it is. So if you plug in a certain kind of R-naught into your modeling, you're going to come out with these massive numbers, especially the mortality rates at the time, which were thought to be 7 to 10%. You know, a 10% mortality, a high R-naught, and you're going to have something like a billion infected and... In 30 million deaths, you know? Uh, These are the kind of numbers you work with in early modeling that might not, should probably come with a caveat if we don't have all the complete data yet.
0: How soon, I'm just curious, how soon into the modeling did many scientists believe that uh, Neil Ferguson's model was way off? When did that come out?
1: I thought it was relatively quick afterwards. From what I recall, uh, the news was coming out, you know, everyone was reporting the 2 million deaths and our nation's healthcare uh, decision makers were basing their decisions on that. But I believe very quickly afterwards, they didn't, uh, there, was, there was, I don't wanna call it dissent, but disagreement in terms of what the total numbers were gonna actually be. Um, that was early. Now, uh, I don't know if you guys have looked, but if you look at some of the more recent modeling where uh, they've put in some more data, and some of the more recent modeling looks a little more accurate in terms of, you know, they said by November, you're going to have 240,000 deaths in the U.S., for example, right? And it looks like for now, right now, for example, by November, we're going to have about 240,000 deaths. So the more the more accurate numbers you can put into this modeling, the, the, the better outcome, the better data you're going to get out or better outcomes you're going to get out.
0: Just so we're clear, so two things on that. Uh, number one, what about that 85% of those numbers that you just talked about were actually as a result of comorbidities versus actual causes? was 94%. 94%,
1: rather,
0: 6%. Right. So
1: that was that CDC uh, CDC put it on their website, I believe, about a month ago, Some uh, along the lines of uh, only 6% of the deaths from COVID, they only had COVID. Uh, 94% of the other deaths, they had other comorbidities. Um, and we've talked about this. So, and uh, depending on uh, which side of the line you're on, you took that uh, those numbers differently, but basically you can think of it this way. Uh, the CDC kind of put it out incorrectly as far as they didn't describe it well enough. They're basically trying to say six out of a hundred people like catch COVID only had COVID and died from COVID. The other 94, had something else we don't know if it attributed to their deaths but they had something else but by something else they include it was like a blanket comorbidity statement could have been rheumatoid arthritis could have been i you know you see does you guys see all these long-term diseases all the time how many people out of a hundred have some kind of long-term disease be it any kind in in this country a lot i'm just curious in this country a lot so yeah, no, this country, it's it, more, uh, more mm-hmm. business or, um Obesity, morbid obesity, and all these kind of things. You see it a lot. So chances are very high that someone's also going to have a comorbid. I see it all the time. Almost every one of my patients has some kind of comorbidity, right? I'm
2: wondering if those comorbidities qualify as a gunshot wound in the head and a car accident. Yeah.
1: No, th- those, those you see the news about, like, uh, you know, <laughs> if they died from a motorcycle accident, they had COVID, it was listed as part of right. potential Yeah, You know, like, we joke about that, and it's it, – not not joke in terms of how they died, but we we talk about those numbers and we say, oh, this is ridiculous. We have to talk about those are very isolated cases um, on both ends. A lot of people on the other end will say, well, there's a lot of people that died that um, it wasn't counted. You know, people died in their homes in the early days, and nobody knew that that was COVID. Very true, but again, how many people? Are you talking an extra 5,000, 10,000 people that may have died uh, and COVID wasn't captured on their cause of death? Okay, you can add those to the total morbidities, but what about the tens of millions that had COVID that weren't diagnosed with it and they survived? You gotta add those to the survivals, right? So it it goes both ways. You can talk about these exceptions or you can talk about these um, relatively small numbers in terms of, Uncaptured COVID deaths, but you also have to talk about the larger uncaptured COVID cases. And as you guys are seeing, if you followed every day, yes, there's more cases every day. Yes, there's deaths every day, but the overall mortality is dropping.
2: Right. So we're just testing herd immunity. Wouldn't that be it? I mean, people are exposed that aren't
1: sick just because you test positive. Isn't that herd immunity? Herd immunity. I mean, uh, for this disease, they haven't decided on what the number is to achieve herd, herd immunity. Uh, they haven't come out with anything yet. But for the flu, for example, it's something like 70%, right? Yeah. So, uh, or the average disease 70%. So what you're doing by uh, um, getting all these cases out or getting all this data with all the testing you're doing is you're basically seeing exactly how many people have it. Uh, what, what are the, uh, our, uh, state politicians like to call it the positivity rates? Mm-hmm. How many, what percent of patients have come up positive from uh, the testing, right? You're based, you're, all of this is data you're gathering, right? Data, data, 50,000 cases today, 700 deaths today, right? That's not a 7% mortality, right? So mortality levels are dropping. The antibody testing that we talked about, that was done a few months back where it showed uh, it looks like based on antibody testing, the actual case counts could be anywhere from 10 to 15 times higher than reported, right? Right now, we're at 8 million documented cases. According to the antibody testing, we should be at 80 to 120 million cases just in this country alone, right? 120 million cases, that's, that's 33% of the country, right. right? Herd immunity, if you keep going at this pace, herd immunity can be achieved by this time next year. Um, but you're going to have a lot of people saying, hold off on that. Don't say, uh, you know, uh, the numbers aren't out. We don't know what herd immunity is yet. Yeah, we don't know what the numbers are, but what we always talk about, Dr. G the offices and all this testing, all this data is coming out and it. And, uh, more and more shows mortality rates dropping. And the CDC even came out and said, they estimate. CDC estimated uh, mortality be 0.2%, 0.26%, something like that. Yeah. Other people disagree, say it's slightly higher, but we always talked about it from the very beginning. We thought it would drop under 1% somewhere. Right.
2: So now you actually, the things you're doing now is you monitor the uh, drugs that are given to uh, the seniors in nursing homes, right? I mean, you're looking at their, their medication, their programs. So you, you're intimately involved with what's going on in the nursing homes. So can you talk about that? Since that was really the majority of the deaths was from nursing homes. Can you give us what you've learned about that?
1: Yeah, so uh, in the beginning, a lot of the cases and deaths were in these nursing homes. Um, I go to about 12 to 15 accounts every month. And in the beginning, let's that's, that's called the beginning when things started really going uh, crazy, February, March, April, uh, nursing homes, they were getting, having massive outbreaks, whether it was their staff or their patients. Um, mortality rates, obviously high, you're talking about generally elderly people with multiple comorbidities, or you're talking about uh, nursing homes now, they're, they're basically rehabilita- rehabilitation centers for a lot of ortho procedures. Uh, used to be done in the hospital, but now they send them out to nursing homes, hip, hip surgery, knee, knee replacement, whatever it may be, they do rehab there. These people are, are also maybe not exactly 30 years old. You know, they're on the older end spectrum, and they have comorbidities. So there, uh, there, was, there was pretty big outbreaks, and, and we all saw it in the news, right? We saw it almost every day in the news. So-and-so nursing home, 80% of their patients caught it, or so-and-so nursing home. They had like a hundred deaths in in three weeks, whatever it may be. Um, That was happening in very early stages. And now, I mean, one case here, zero case there, these nursing homes have really clamped down um, as far as their infection control. And based on what I've seen the past couple months, their infection rates are much better than the community. Um,
2: So is that
1: even really a threat in nursing homes anymore? It's, it's, a, it's a continuous threat in terms of it's out there and it can come into nursing homes pretty easily, um, but they've gotten so much better about monitoring their patients. Uh, whenever they admit a patient, they sort of put them in a, on part of the wing of the nursing home where they can monitor them for a week or so to make sure they don't uh, develop any kind of symptoms um, so it's kind of like a self, like a mini quarantine they put up, they have, uh, when they have a, a case, they have a specific rooms set aside just for COVID patients and nurses set aside just to help do, uh, treat those patients. Um, it's, it's not a threat in terms of the numbers inside the nursing homes, but it's a community threat that can always enter. They still have restricted uh, family visits and all of that. That's, that's part of the thing. They're keeping it out by restricting who comes in? So, what
2: do you think about you know? We see Cuomo and these other governors that have shoved all these COVID positive people in nursing homes. That uh, was actually illegal. What do you know? What do you know about that? And based on just your experience, how do you feel about those policies?
1: It wasn't just Cuomo because remember what New York does typically, California does. Uh, I saw the all facilities letter from California. To uh, tell these nursing homes, it was almost a word-for-word word thing, word-for-word uh, word letter that uh, New York sent to the nursing homes, basically saying you're you're not allowed to not admit these patients. Uh, if we if the need arises and we need to send them to you, you're you have to take them. Um, and based on uh, what we knew about how nursing the population in nursing homes and uh, the staffing in nursing homes in terms of, you know, nursing people get the misconception they're like hospitals where there's a one, one nurse for every one patient or something like that. It's not like that. It's one nurse for every 30 patients. You know, the staffing is much different than what a hospital is. The monitoring is much different. Um, the patient population, it, they're not equipped to deal with a highly infectious virus. So when I saw that letter, I immediately texted some of my nursing home friends and said, this is this is going to be a problem. Um, and sure enough, it was.
0: Um, so that's the, I mean, let's stop right there. Just I just want to land on that concept. So here's what we did. We took well people who were healthy, who might catch the virus and maybe get a sneeze or nothing at all and we lock them down. At the same time, we have two of the most populous states, California and New York, and we're taking sick people who were infected with the virus and we're putting them into the most vulnerable place you can possibly put them into and allowing that infection to go through that population, which has a huge uh, lethal Morbidity. morbidity and mortality rate. And so it was almost like if you tried to mess this thing up like they the, did a really
2: good job. <laughs>
0: they, they, it was like they're intentional. At the same time, we took people, which I like to address, they took people who were well and they quarantined them, which, as we talked about, causing these people, this population, the healthy population, to get sick and to commit suicide and to have alcohol abuse and opiate addictions. So we basically drove an entire well population into sick, into sickness on both levels by completely mixing up the policy.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, something we always talked about, Uh, it's like, I don't know if you could have said it better, if you were trying to mess this up in the early stages, you couldn't have done a better job uh, than what was done early. Um, You know, whether it be panic driven, fear driven, uh, lack of preparation from our county officials or our state and federal officials, whatever it may be, there's just certain common sense measures you would take and in just outside of coronavirus, influenza, the nursing homes take influenza very seriously. Like they they really tried hard to immunize all their patients, their staff, they influenza they take seriously. So when you're talking about a virus that's more infectious than flu, and even though it's not as deadly as maybe it's made out to be, it's still deadlier than influenza. You're taking that virus and you're introducing it into a place that, into places that shouldn't be considered primary care centers for should be protected if anything. It should be protected, right? The we, the elderly are the ones that should be protected. These are the populations that should be protected. And that was part of what some of these other uh, experts have said from the beginning, even now, uh, you protect the at-risk population, um, you, you those are the ones you care about, you pay more attention to, or maybe isolate a little bit more than you normally do, not the young and healthy.
0: So let's talk about the Great Barrington Report, which is pretty much what we're talking about right now. Also, just one, just one brief uh, correction, I, I, I think is correct. You mentioned about the high uh, mortality rate of the COVID, in actual fact, um, relative to the flu, but in a younger population, COVID actually has a lower fatality rate relative to the flu. Is, are you, do you agree with
1: that? Yeah, if you look at the demographics, and, the, uh, and again, a lot of this data is available, readily available for anyone online, whether it be the CDC website, WHO, wherever you want to get this information, this, uh, the COVID. Yes, it's more deadly for uh, the elderly population, but it's not hitting kids as hard as the flu does. Uh, it's not hitting young adults as hard as the flu does. It's only when you start getting up in the age demographic is when it starts reversing and becoming more deadly. Um, Overall, it looks, depending on the mortality per 100,000, if you normalize it per 100,000, depending on the data you're looking at, this virus is anywhere from six to 12 times as uh, deadly as the flu overall so far these uh, the covid uh mortality numbers again we keep saying keep dropping right now it's about six to 15 times more deadly than the flu um being that the flu wasn't very deadly to begin with so i mean put that where you think it belongs as far as coronavirus but um, yeah you're right that this age demographic is not as hard not not nearly as impacted as the older demographic when comparing the two viruses Nice.
0: Going let's talk about the, yeah, let's
1: go into the Barrington uh, report. The Barrington Initiative, I believe it's called. Uh, it's a group of uh, healthcare industry experts, be it virologists or epidemiologists from around the world, it looks like. I looked at uh, some of the people that started this initiative. Um, pretty, pretty well diverse and a renowned group of people uh, basically put out there that, hey, uh, as, as bad as this virus may be, the main point is, it's not bad enough where we need to do what we're doing right now in terms of shutdowns and locking everything down. Uh, they specifically brought up what uh, we've been talking about from the very beginning, what you've been talking about for, from the very beginning. Um, some of these other uh, unintended consequences have been popping up from the shutdowns, more uh, suicide rates, child abuse, domestic abuse, um and let's not even forget what's rarely talked about the 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 psychological impact on children this is having um the world is ending this thing's going to kill you uh you're if you catch this you're going to kill grandma and grandpa uh stay home stay away from this uh those of us that grew up during the cold war era i'm still old enough for that remember the constant threat of nuclear war at any time and for me as a child, that was terrifying. Like, I remember it uh, in, the, in the 80s. It was always there, whether it be in the movies or in the news, it was always there. Surprisingly, a lot of people in my generation have a lot of anxiety disorders and a lot of depression and all of that. So this is just another wave of that. So that's something that rarely gets talked about. The Barrington Initiative basically got sent out uh, to whether you're in healthcare or you're uh, you know outside of healthcare, basically letting people know hey if you agree with this uh sign up and read a little bit more about it look into the data look into the research do your own research don't rely necessarily on what you you get from any side of the media necessarily um well i think what perpetuates that fear too
2: is you got to put your kid in a mask i mean you see even though It's everywhere that masks, that children are not a means of transmission. I mean, you go to Europe and schools are open, you know, and we drive home from working out or whatever. You see all the cars lined up and the moms dropping off their masked kids. And the psychological factor, like what you said, would be like when you were a kid with a threat of of nuclear war. However, we couldn't see anything. So this generation is even worse because they actually have to wear something. I mean, they see it everywhere. The psychological impact, not even to mention the physiologic impact of a kid wearing masks with how sensitive kids are to oxygen deprivation and rebreathing of CO2 is is even causes anxiety, not to mention living in fear.
1: No, absolutely. Uh, These are all things... uh, even us, whether we're experts, psychological experts or not experts, we can um, guess as to how this impacts children, but we don't really know because we're not living their lives and just basing it on our own experience. It's other than that's the fair, fear, your lack of social interaction—that's so important for children. I know everyone's on their phones. I know everyone's on their tablets. I know. I know you see your kids sitting there net, right next to each other on their phones, like. Communicating with each other on text when they're in the same room, you see that, but they're still around each other. Uh, One of my good friends has kids that are young and in school and he says, don't underestimate the impact this has on my kids not being able to see their friends and hang out with each other. They're hanging out with adults now, like all day every day that's that's. we would have... That's not near as much fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
2: This is not fun.
1: Not just fun. You just can't relate with people, right? You're yeah, just being, exactly. You just can relate with anyone. So we don't even know the kind of uh, psychological disorders or uh, impacts this thing will have for another 10, 15 years when these kids grow up.
0: Well, I can tell you some stats. We anticipate at least an additional 65,000 suicides are going to occur. And we also know that previous to COVID, uh, two... Uh, And 10 girls were cutting themselves or doing some sort of self-harm. And also, I see it. I, I Honestly, I see this every day in my office because I, I work with a group called Laura's House, which are um, an organization for battered women. They are overwhelmed with women needing their support because this is, since COVID, this has skyrocketed. I also work with an organization called Bud's Odyssey. It's a nonprofit for vets, first responders. The amount of suicide calls that they're getting right now is through the roof. So, how is it's affecting children? I, I can only assume in a really, really negative, impactful way. And, and also back to the Barrington, uh, there's over been over thirty thousand signatures from physicians and well over ten thousand from people in the allied healthcare. So that's forty thousand healthcare professionals agree that the, we are causing damage to children. Agree that this is causing. Some co, what would we call morbidities? What's a word I'm Clateral looking for? Collateral damage. Collateral damage because of the lockdowns. So if we don't wake up, we're going to cause irreversible damage. So you know whether the virus is out there for young people or it looks like it's it's less uh, deadly than the flu for young people, not for old people, but for young people. Yet what is not, um, what we can take back is we can't take back abuse. We can't take back uh, uh, drugs and alcohol addiction and abuse, and we can't take back suicide. So uh, my prayer is really, I mean, we got to get this right, and we got to change the course of this. And, and as part of what we're trying to do is resurrecting our freedom, is we're trying to get the truth out there so we can get things open up so we can, yes, protect those people, that age group that you're dealing with, but we also have to protect the younger people from the damage that this is causing.
2: Well, and one thing, too, if you saw the presidential debate, I mean, Trump was talking about the collateral damage, and he actually said the cure is worse than the cause. And then Biden's telling that he's totally irresponsible. 200,000 more people are going to die in the next 45 days, and he wants to lock down the whole country, and then mandatory vaccination for everyone, so... So we are definitely at a pivoting, pivot point, not only in the history of this country, but certainly in the history of our lives as to how this thing
1: may go soon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just, this virus in a sense is unprecedented in, in terms of how, how long it's sticking around. Uh, let's not forget SARS was out there at the time. SARS I believe had a 10% mortality. MERS, the Middle Eastern respiratory virus had a 30% mortality. They flamed out, okay? Uh, swine flu from 2009. Uh, the mortality wasn't necessarily as high as these viruses, but people don't remember uh, it was getting out there and it sort of flamed out. I believe uh, one of uh, Vice President Biden's assistance uh, in, Jan- in November of last year said, we really got lucky with that thing because uh, it could have been really bad. Um, swine flu, as an example, a lot of, not a lot of people know. I believe the WHO estimated 300,000 people died from swine flu in 2009 worldwide. 80% of them were under 65. Swine flu was killing young people. 240,000 out of the 300,000 were under 65 years of age. It was killing young people and we weren't at this level of panic as we are now no
2: and isn't that really what viruses do they come in they spike and then they and then they trail off they all do that that's it's cyclical in nature that's how that's how the universe works right i mean they come in they mutate they die out just like this one and that's where trump said you know this will pass and you know in the debate he's like we don't have to worry about it. this is going to pass and then so to me, it became obvious if anybody was paying attention to that into the debate, people say, well, let's not make this political. Bullshit, it is political. <laughs> it's exactly what it is.
1: In this country right now, this year, everything is political. Exactly. And it wasn't hard to imagine making a virus political, right? Uh, so that is going to be there uh, no matter how deadly this virus is or isn't, or how long it lasts, that was always going to be the issue. Yeah. Uh, the, what we need to do is we talked about, we talk about this in your office. People just need to look up the data for themselves. People need to find, find this information for themselves and not rely on social media, mainstream media, um. Go get this information yourself and you'll see what we're talking about, what most people are talking about, a lot of experts are talking about. Um, This virus, will it ever go away? It's a coronavirus. If you look at the history of coronaviruses, they don't really ever go away. What you do is you eventually develop some kind of worldwide herd immunity to it, whether it be through overtime by just getting exposed to it or through vaccinations. Vaccinations are a way of getting to herd immunity faster than the natural process. Uh, you know, we, we talk about vaccinations all the time and we may disagree on their uh, utility or their safety, but that's how you get to herd immunity. Um, it's, it's something that, um, for example, influenza vaccine, uh, it's been around for years and years and years. On average, about 50% of people refuse the influenza vaccine. So influenza, on average, for whatever reason, about half the population refuses it. Influenza is is around every year. It's not going away. It'll never go away. And that's with the 50% refusal rate. Right now, we look in the news and everyone's terrified of this coronavirus vaccine. I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. Right now, the polling showed about 40, 45% of people plan on refusing the vaccine. You know How we got here, we can agree or disagree with, but the quickest way to get out of it for everyone's peace of mind is someone telling the population we're at herd immunity or we're at a point where we don't have to worry about this anymore. You know, uh, we talk about it all the time, Doctor D. Uh, our policymakers, whether federally or uh, locally, they're in too deep. They've they've made this. They've created these lockdowns. They've they've inconvenienced our lives in multiple ways. It's too late. If you think about human psychology, it's really too late for them to backpedal out into oh, this is no big deal.
2: Right? Otherwise, people are going to be so pissed. <laughs> oh, it's, not, it's not about pissed. It's It'll about be like... so many lawsuits.
1: <laughs> lawsuits. Yeah, it's riot, like, oops, protests. I
2: know. We're it, in too deep, gang. Lawsuits. Can't stop now. We got to tell them everybody's fucked you're, because... You're uh, in, or we're going to be fucked. It's either <laughs> yeah, them or us. Is really what it's I come mean, down to.
1: Outside of just, just think of human psychology. I'm, I shut down my whole state because of this. Uh-oh, the mortality is actually... Yeah, oops. <laughs> What am I gonna do? I'm gonna double down. It's still dangerous. Be careful, it's spreading. The only way back from this is to tell people herd immunity is getting there and vaccines and get vaccinated and all that. So that's what's gonna be the new push. Whether we're gonna get there soon, I don't know. Uh, They keep calling it Trump's vaccine. Uh, I I don't know why they're doing that. They're trying to promote people to get vaccinated and achieve herd immunity, but then they're labeling it as Trump's vaccine. To sort of scare people away from it, I don't understand why they're doing it. Well, I believe the research,
2: what I've seen, has also said there's a thirty six percent probability that if you get the vaccine, that you're actually going to get COVID. And of course, you know, I mean, we have we may have different stances on this, but you know, we make videos say, okay, let's see. So you got scared, you wear a mask, you stay at home, you got fired, laid off, you do all this you do all that and then you're going to inject it directly into your body after all that then you're going to put it right into your bloodstream so coming from a chiropractic perspective we say don't do that however uh neuroimmunology shows the immune system and the nervous system are connected so get under chiropractic care stimulate your immune system Eat healthy, take vitamin D, like there's 8 million things you can do other than, du- than directly injecting SARS-CoV-2 into your body. So that's that's our perspective.
0: I'm to one more point to that, actually, as well. Just a counterpoint to our discussions that we have on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> In addition to those kinds, of... <laughs> uh, I love what Fauci said. He said something that was fascinating to me. We better hurry up and come out with a vaccine before herd immunity develops.
2: Yeah. so he, That's because he's he's got one patented, right? He's in
0: Moderna. <laughs> I just wonder, you know, at the rate, if we, let's just talk about this real quick. If we get a vaccine for whatever, uh, that's a limited, it's not a lifetime immunity, whereas a lot of other things, like if you get the measles naturally, you have a lifetime immunity to the measles So I understand for this issue, one vaccine isn't gonna do it. They're they're looking at at least two, and they're not even sure how long, if you get both of the doses of vaccine, because it's not a one-dose vaccine, it's a two-dose, they're questioning even how long that immunity will last for, is that right?
1: Right, So, but this is where, when you hear it takes about 10 years to develop a vaccine, this is why it takes 10 years to develop a vaccine, right? You go through phase one, two, three trials, to find exactly this stuff out how long does the first injection last how what's my antibody response when can i give the second injection if at all third injection hepatitis b is a hepatitis b is a series of three injections right so that's why it takes 10 years to do it well when when a long fast term track fast. like this yeah when you're fast track like this you don't know a lot of this stuff so guess who becomes the guinea pigs yeah you People are. Are like, me, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: you are the ain't getting in <laughs> line for
1: that
2: one. I'm sorry, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just saying.
1: It'll I it's gonna be mandatory from people like me. Uh it's not even gonna be an option. For us, it'll be mandatory. Um we're the we're the us and the elderly infirmed are the first line of people that are supposed to get the vaccine. Right. Uh and for us, I don't think it's mandatory. I mean, I don't think it's voluntary, it'll be mandatory. Um the data, we even talked about this before they started mentioning the vaccine. You know, Dr. I was in the office, just being a coronavirus. It's a family of many viruses that's associated with the common cold, rhinovirus, adenovirus, all of these viruses. People get multiple colds a year, right? People, these viruses change, these viruses mutate. So to say that you're able to get a one-time coronavirus vaccine, I don't think that was feasible even from the very beginning. So we will require multiple injections. How many, we won't know. Um, you know, going back to, to your point, we're going to slightly disagree here. One of the, uh, the viruses that's closest to coming out, the Moderna vaccine, is an mRNA vaccine. Basically, it's the DNA of the virus that's injected in you, and it gets your cells to, pr- to produce a certain uh, part of the virus that's not infectious. Just the part of the virus that allows the immune system to recognize it as as a bad guy, right? So there's there's different kinds of vaccinations. There's live attenuated virus: measles, MMR, chickenpox, smallpox. These are live viruses that are injected in you, and you you do have a slight chance of actually getting infected from these. Um, there's um, inactivated virus: the flu shot. It's the actual virus, but it's been killed off. So you're just injecting a dead virus into your body hoping your immune system can recognize future live viruses, right? And then there's these various types of other vaccines that are biotech-based, uh, DNA technology. You're, you're using a, a, another type of virus to piggyback this genetic code into your body in order for your body to produce these antibodies that we talk about all the time. So... Nusaphi, um, how many DNA virus vaccines do we have? God, I can't even, I can't even, I don't even know. Give me a common one. Like what's a common DNA vaccine? A common DNA vaccine. Um, man, I they're so rare uh there's not that many most of them are that that was my point
0: they're yeah. not that many DNA vaccines and that's what's scary because we're injecting a, a DNA into the system but yeah anyway, we gotta
2: uh, yeah that's a whole we're gonna a have a whole, whole uh, podcast we which should be all about
0: vaccination but we'll have to have you back and we'll have to have one just vaccination
1: yeah. podcast yeah. so yeah. and
0: just see. really quick is uh Brianna getting a vaccine
1: uh she has never gotten any kind of vaccine. I still can't talk her into getting the flu shot. So I don't <laughs> like to talk to the flu.
2: that's, that's Doctor
1: Doug's patient, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's how we yeah.
2: yeah, she. Uh, I don't. Are you trying to make a point with that question?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, listen. Uh, I mean, we really appreciate. <laughs> you hey, being... man,
2: thank you so much. Sorry. No, it's like okay. sorry for being so open with us and. You're, you have a wealth of knowledge and what you brought here, I think was so valuable, not only for us, but for the people that were listening to really know what's going on and to take a, an honest second look. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for your time,
0: Amir.
2: You guys, thank I'll you. see you later
1: on the week. Yeah, we'll see you.
2: Hey, it was awesome talking to Amir. And what's fascinating is to actually to to be able to find out what's really going on you know what i mean i mean you're a chiropractor in your office right i mean we hear stories and you you're getting them firsthand in your office the stories but he's in he's a pharmacist he's dealing with the drugs he's he's in nursing homes and in the worst of the worst of the people that are affected and to be able to uh To be able to find out what's going on, the medical world's impression, and to find that the medical world doesn't even agree with all this. And these are the frontline people. Right. It's That really is fascinating.
0: So I was optimistic about a couple things. Number one, I was optimistic that he talked about even the doctors that he works with, they're they're seeing the truth behind this vaccine and the, the virus. And so we talked a little bit about the controversy of the vaccine, so make sure, you know, you might want to watch this a couple times and share this with a couple friends, because we go through a couple of probably nitty-gritty cool stuff about vaccines and the virus. Right. The other thing I liked about it, he was talking about they're now no longer seeing the death rate in these the most vulnerable place, which are these uh, assisted living facilities, senior right. city and nursing homes. They're seeing the fatality rate, which used to be hundreds, like now maybe one, maybe two, a month or so. So we're seeing Zero. A, a, fa- a fatality rate drop even amongst Uh, the worst
2: people so if that's a reflection of what's going on in the world then why the hell does someone want to shut the country down why the hell are business closed this has nothing to do with the virus and that's what we're seeing right that's exactly the most vulnerable population the death rate mortality rate is flat then why the hell are we doing this so when you see that are you asking yourself that question because I, I already asked myself that question. Well, we already know the answer, but maybe you should ask yourself and then call your governor. How about that one?
0: And it's not just us, although, you know, we're, we were ahead of this curve, I have to say. Long In long. January. <laughs> uh, but it's not, not just us. It's 40,000 other doctors and physicians and healthcare workers all signed that great Barrington report, which all agree with us that this lockdown is worse than the virus. Yeah. By
2: far. There you go. Well, check it out. Ring the bell. Ding, ding, ding. Share this everywhere. Because, hey, knowledge is power, man. We got to get it out there. Knowledge is power and stand up for our freedom because we are resurrecting our freedoms. Thanks.